Olympic Channel podcast. As an Olympian, you can experience some of the highest highs the world can offer. Imagine you're in a pool swimming in a race and you're winning against none other than swimming legend Ian Thorpe, one of the best of all time. It's a relay and you touch the side in first place. You look out of the water and Michael Phelps and all the rest of your team are going absolutely crazy on the side. Fast forward a few years later and you're homeless, depressed and living in your car. No job, no nothing. This is a real story. For me, I was out on the street in one night. There was a lot of tears. I, I cried a lot and I was, I was so scared. I'd never been that scared. So you'd think that day would be low, but it just kept getting lower and lower and lower for like the next couple of years. That was USA swimmer Cleet Keller. He won gold with Michael Phelps and is a two-time Olympic champion. This all happened, but how? Hello, my name is Ed Knowles, and this is the official Olympic Channel podcast. Each week we find for you the very best Olympians, and we ask them to go in deep about the biggest Olympic talking points. We want you to think just like an Olympian. Olympic Channel podcast. Cleet struggled once he left the sport of swimming. Never really given up before, and once I hit the working world, I gave up. We're going to find out how it feels to come back from a dark place. There are a lot of tears and a lot of intense negative emotion. Olympic Channel Podcast. When I spoke to Cleet Keller, there was a moment when it just struck me how kind of normal everything seemed. A dog was wandering around in the background. He had balanced his tablet on a heap of books to video call me nicely. He was smiling all the time. He had a big glass of water to keep himself hydrated normal stuff, you know? His story, though, is anything but normal. Athens 2004 was the absolute pinnacle of his swimming career. At this time, Michael Phelps was transforming into the most decorated Olympian of all time. Cleet and Phelps both competed in what's known as the race of the century. Now, everyone was in this race and everyone was in form. The mythical five-time Olympic champion Ian Thorpe was favourite for gold in the 200-metre freestyle. Peter van der Hergenband from the Netherlands, who was defending Olympic champion, plus Grant Hackett from Australia. He was a former world record holder in the event. A showdown for all time. Thorpe won. Felt actually came third place behind van der Hergenband. The man in fourth, Cleet. He won gold in the 200-metre relay in Athens 2004 with Phelps and Ryan Lochte and returned again in 2008 to pick up another gold for his part in the prelims of the relay. He didn't know then, but he would fall a long way from this height. A long way. Eventually, he would be homeless and depressed, divorced and without access to see his three kids. But Keller pretty much smiled throughout when we were doing this interview. He's in the process of rebuilding his life. He's got a job and he started to see his kids again. Keller stared into the abyss and now he's emerging out the other side. And you know what? He says he's stronger. But when I spoke to him, we started at the very beginning and I asked him about that race, the race of the century in Athens 2004. Olympic Channel podcast exclusive. In 2004, he wasn't uh, the Michael Phelps that we all know today. It was still largely about uh, Thorpe and Hogan Bond. And uh, 
I knew those guys were going to be super fast. It sounds kind of cliche to say it, but I was I was just really happy to be there and be in that heat against those big names. There was just a ton of splashing, a ton of bubbles uh, because it's it's a long sprint. Michael had gone an incredible American record time, like you mentioned, and I had gone the best time. So I knew after that that we'd have a really good shot in the relay the next day. So I was mostly excited about that relay coming up. You said that Thorpe was almost like a mythical figure. I guess that once you have beaten that mythical figure, you must have an immense feeling of pride. He really was a mythical figure. The guy is just enormous. His shoulders are massive. He's very thickly built. I think he had some crazy like size 17 feet. He wore a, a wrist to ankles full body suit that was black. And when he dove into the water, it turned silver because it trapped these bubbles. So uh, on top of his just incredible times he was swimming, he also had the physical presence to really be intimidating. And the other thing that was really cool about it was it was his last um, it was his last race of his career. The coaches are smart. You know, they do a lot of game planning and you know, they thought that Thorpe would anchor the relay, uh, which he did. So we had our strongest guy, Michael, lead off. And uh, his job was to get the lead. And then all of us, all the rest of us were told to hold that lead. And it was a very tall order. <laughs> a lot of nerves went into that. But at the very end, I said, all right, we got about 10 yards, 10 meters to go. I'm just going to execute my perfect finish and uh, touch with my fingernails, my fingertips and see what happens. I'll look up at Michael and Ryan and, and Peter and I'll judge by their reaction whether we won or not. Once I finally lifted my head above the water, they were going nuts. <laughs> and it was such an immense feeling of relief at first. Um, but then once... Once that relief kind of subsided, it was total joy, jubilation, and um, it was such a cool experience to win for once because uh, the best I had done up to that point was in individual events was bronze. So it was really neat to, to be able to, to win one and feel what Michael has felt 20-plus times. And his, <laughs> his reaction and everybody else's reaction on that relay was so genuine and just pure uh, happiness and excitement. It was it was an amazing feeling, something that I don't think there's really a comparison to it. Although I would say, like, uh, having my first kid was just as uh, intense. It was just happiness, excitement, relief, all rolled into one. I mean, that wasn't the end. You went to Beijing in 2008, and although mm -hmm. it, it didn't compare to the achievements that you did you still were an, an, an Olympian and in, in, I think you medaled right in 2008 because you were part of the relay right exactly yeah so we got a gold I was on the preliminary heat so I wasn't on the finals but uh, you know it's really an honor to to swim in the Olympics in whatever capacity so uh, while it wasn't as exciting and I didn't have the uh, the experience I did in 04 it was still a pleasure and an honor to be there we look at Olympians, and I include yourself in this, as kind of inspirational people who can handle the pressure when it matters the most. And you prove that you can do that. You know, there's no, there's no question with that, with that against Thorpe. You know, you could have easily choked because the right. pressure was so high. You know, and yet 
when you're put into a real world situ- situation like a sales job, you struggled. Did that come as such a surprise to yourself? You're like, why can't I handle these huge things? But this just seems not to be able to, I, I don't understand why I can't work this out. It was very frustrating because in a, in a sense, it's a much smaller level, much less exposure. You know, there aren't a billion people watching like there are for the Olympics. The stakes seem much lower. It's like, okay, I'm talking to Joe Blow right now. And, you know, success is if he says yes and signs on the dotted line. Um, so in that sense, the pressure is nowhere near what I faced in the Olympics. But at the same time, I found the real world pressure uh, much more intimidating and much more difficult to deal with because I went from swimming to having three kids and a wife within a year. And uh, so the um, the consequences of not succeeding were very, very real and very, and you know, if I didn't make a sale or if my manager was, you know, ticked off at me or if I got fired, oh shoot, you got, you have no health insurance, it's very concrete and there's other people that are blood related counting on you. So I felt when I failed a much more acute sense of pain and frustration and failure than I did with swimming. Um, with swimming, it was just me. All those years of success I had with swimming really gave me an inaccurate <laughs> expectation of the world. And so it was all the much harder to cope with the little mini failures I would experience on any given day. At swim practice, you know, if I quote unquote failed on one set, I had another set immediately after that I could redeem myself on. And um, and I knew how to how to put that behind me and do well on the next set in practice. But if I was going on my next sales appointment and the previous one resulted in failure, uh, I just had a, a very difficult time putting it behind me and transitioning, I think because the stakes were higher and so much more real for me. The worst did happen. You lost that job, right? I lost several jobs. <laughs> I was, uh, I'll be honest, I wasn't a good employee or worker for the longest time because I expected it all to come to me as easily as swimming did. And when it didn't, I would get upset. And I would I would try really hard. I found out a pattern with myself. I would be really excited for a job for about three months. I'd pour every ounce of energy into myself, into that job. And then once things started going south or didn't pan out the way I expected them to, I lost um, I lost that enthusiasm, and uh, I kind of gave up and became lazy uh, in several of my jobs. And I was like this job sucks anyway. It's not fulfilling. I'm not getting anything out of it. And hey, I, I've been an Olympian. This doesn't mean anything to me anyway. So uh, I had kind of a chip on my shoulder and an, a bad attitude and an ego that uh, I expected to be fulfilled with success in business. And when that didn't happen, it was just kind of compounded on itself. And my attitude got worse until, you know, everything collapsed. So I had a series of, of collapses and it really took me a lot of beating my head against the wall to finally figure things out. And it took a long time to do that, probably 10 years. 
you ended up then just in your car. Can you describe what happened then? I guess it filtered into your relationship, basically, didn't it? All these all these struggles. So what I what I really needed after swimming was an attitude adjustment. I I had the ego from swimming. I was never outwardly um, cocky or anything, but what I eventually realized was I really was cocky inside, and I expected to perform the way I did in swimming all the time. And in the lead up to the working world, I had talked to my mentors and they had said, listen, you're going to have no problem uh, going in and immediately making six figures right out of the gate. Um, Everyone's going to want to hire you. Everyone's going to want to do business with you. So I had a really unrealistic expectation going in. And when those things didn't happen, it really affected my, my outlook. And um, so on top of just the work being unfulfilling compared to swimming at the Olympics and training for the Olympics, I had that entitled attitude, I would say. You know, I expected to win and I expected people to respond posit- positively to me. And when that didn't happen over and over and over, it really affected my general outlook on life. And I got really down and bummed out about everything, really. I didn't know how to compartmentalize uh, work and personal life, and it all kind of bled together. And uh, I gained a ton of weight because I would um, I would eat and I would drink beers at night as um, out of frustration. I love to eat. I still do. And that all started with swimming. I could eat whatever I wanted and however much I wanted. And uh, I continued to do that after I retired, which not a good idea. Everything kind of just started spiraling out of control. And I would let things devolve to such a point where it was kind of unsalvageable. And I would kind of throw my hands up to my ex-wife's credit. She stuck with me through a lot of that. Um, a lot of that giving up is what I did. I had never really given up before. And once I hit the working world, I gave up several times and I just stopped trying once, you know, I wasn't getting the success I expected. I became, I think I became a real lazy, spoiled, entitled person. Um, uh, just cause I didn't know, I didn't have the coping skills. And you would think that the, um, you would think all the lessons I learned in swimming would immediately transfer, but it really takes a lot of work to figure out exactly how to transfer athletic lessons into real life lessons, how to put a bad day behind you and move on uh, in the working world. It's, it, there is some correlation there, but it's a totally different approach you need to take. And I had no idea how to approach it. And uh, yeah, it, it definitely affected my marriage. I'd be really mad when I came home from work because uh, you know, I would see all the success around me and these people doing really well at their job. I felt that a lot of managers that I was working with, they really didn't know how to motivate. And I, I had experienced you know, coaches that really took an, an interest in the individual and knew how to connect with them and how to motivate them. And a manager kind of takes a one size fits all. You get, a, you get a kick in the butt when you need it and that's it. And I would always think, you know, this isn't how you motivate people. I'm not, I don't feel motivated at all. I feel like I'm better than these people in my job because I was an Olympian. And so that's where the ego comes in. And when all that didn't 
didn't pan out, uh, it really affected my attitude in every aspect of my life and things started crumbling. The headline will always be from winning with Michael Phelps to living in the car. But I guess <laughs> the, the reality is that it happens really, really slow. It doesn't happen like overnight. It happens kind of little by little. And suddenly there's one night where you're in the car and you put the ignition in and you go, huh, this is everything I've, <laughs> I've got. Is that kind of how it happened? Yeah. Yeah, it definitely happened bit by bit. Uh, I started caring less and less about life and succeeding and just becoming a real bitter, angry person. It does happen day by day and you let one thing slide. And for me, it started with not staying active. Uh, instead of waking up early and going to the gym, working and then coming home and engaging with the family, I would be, I slept in in the mornings, uh, I, I didn't do what I needed to do. And it's so amazing how quickly things can, all those negative things add up and can really be detrimental to your overall well-being and character. Um, I, was, uh, I was eating a lot, I was drinking a lot. And so to a third party, I think they could look at that and say, oh man, this guy's sliding. Uh, but when you're in it, you can't really tell. And so one day I came back uh, from work and uh, there was a letter from my wife on the counter listing, you know, everything that was not good. And it took me about five times reading through it before I understood what it was. <laughs> and I was like, oh, shoot. So this is over. And I immediately, you know, started trying to bargain and uh, I was like, wow, okay, this is, this is actually happening. It was a total shock to me, but, you know, looking back now, I can see from her perspective that, you know, it had been years of this guy not being happy, not doing what he needed to do to successful, productive, happy person. Um, and yeah, it's, it all hit me that night. And the next day I also lost my job and I had zero. <laughs> so yeah, I got kicked out of the house. Then the next day I got fired <laughs> and I had no credit cards, no debit cards. Everything was shut off because she had had it up to here, way above her head with me. And uh, so it was over. Wow. So it wasn't slow at all. It was slow then pretty fast. And that's what I learned. Yeah, it's, it's a slow lead up of shirking responsibility and um, just letting the little things uh, slide every day. Slow lead up and it, it builds, eventually builds a critical mass. And once that critical mass is built, it's that last final straw on the camel's back that just breaks it. And for me, I was out on the street in one night. So even though it was a long lead up process, it does happen all at once. And for somebody like me who wasn't aware of things, it felt like all at once. But now looking back, it was a, it was a long lead up of, of negativity and stuff that led to that. It must be low. Like you're already low because you've got yourself in that situation, I guess. So you, you're, you're super low. Yeah, it was, it was extremely humbling. Um, 
like I mentioned before, I had that ego and I had kind of an arrogance about me. And all of a sudden, when you have a car and clothes and that's it, it really put me in my place. And uh, yeah, there was a lot of tears. I, I cried a lot and I was, I was so scared. I'd never been that scared. And, um, you know, I was looking at, you know, everyday people on the street and saying it just immediately put everything into perspective and, um, really gave me a reality check. And, uh, you know, I used to kind of look down on people who didn't have it all together. And all of a sudden I was one of those people. And, uh, so I understood and I realized that there's a story that everybody has. You have to be grateful, um, for what you do have. And you also have to work for what you have. You know, I hadn't put in the necessary work to keep what I had. And all of a sudden it was gone. And yes, I felt very, very low. And, and it wasn't, <laughs> what's funny is, so you'd think that day would be low, but it just kept getting lower and lower and lower for like the next couple of years. There's really no limit to how bad things can get. I learned that. It can always get worse. It, you really have to be disciplined. You have to maintain discipline throughout life in order to stay afloat. So what did you do? What, what happened next? One of the things that happened, uh, you know, in the whole separation from the wife was you shut off everything. So... All the plastic was turned off. Uh, I did have my laptop, thankfully. So I spent about a half a day shell-shocked, uh, not knowing what to do. I had, I had $10 in cash in my wallet. So I went to Subway, got a $5 foot long, and said, wow, okay, there's half my funds, <laughs> half of everything I own out the window. Um, so I, I emailed my sister. I emailed some friends. And I was like, basically said, hey, I need a I need a place. Could you please help me here? Could you take me in? And uh, finally got through to my sister and she said, yes, we're here. Um, so I was in North Carolina at the time. She was in the D.C. area and she said, come on up. We'll we'll take you in and we'd be happy to have you. And that was just like the clouds parting and a ray of light coming down. I ended up calling my credit card company and begging them to you know, help me out. And so what they did, they gave me a hundred dollar extension. So I was able to, to get up to DC and, you know, buy the gas to get there. And once I got to DC, uh, I got there at like midnight and my sister and her husband were there and, uh, you know, they welcomed me in and it was amazing feeling of, of, uh, acceptance and love and shame and all sorts of things rolled into one. But, um, it was uh, very special to have them take me in like that. There's times in your life when you hit proper lows, when someone does something really nice to you, it kind of opens up something else in you some, somehow. It's like, ah, that selfless act is mm -hmm. like the new key to regeneration and it seems like that's what you ended up doing you sort of took a little bit of inspiration from these people who've been kind at least from just reading is is that what you would um you would say happened yeah it really uh you know i went from 
hating everything and um, hating the world and everybody in it to getting the, the total opposite uh, welcoming and love and acceptance from family. And uh, my family was never too close to begin with, but me and my younger sister had always got a, gotten along well, and we actually went to the 04 Olympics together. Um, and uh, to have, and we had a fall, falling out there throughout the years. And, um, you know, to have her show that selfless behavior and act towards me was uh, really redeeming and uh, really put me in a place where uh, I was extremely grateful and I. Um, it, was, it was just very hard to accept it because I had been so used to living a certain lifestyle and not having to struggle. And then all of a sudden, probably the hardest struggle I've ever endured. And then having, you know, just somebody, somebody saving grace, reach out to me and help me in that way. It was, it was a really rekindled, um, my faith in humanity, basically, <laughs> even though I had put myself in the situation to begin with, uh, it was like, well, so this is, you know, this is real love. And this is, uh, I also felt very vulnerable and, uh, for someone to accept me in my, uh, downtrodden beat up state was very humbling and, uh, something I'm eternally grateful for. You're not living in your car now. <laughs> right. I can see that. <laughs> I was in the car for about 10 months. And, you know, funny enough, it was, I was really happy in the car. Um, <laughs> you know, everything got stripped down and I realized what I, there's so much I don't need in life to be happy. <laughs> and I also realized I had such a, such a poor attitude in general. Like I had everything when I was married. I had beautiful kids, beautiful wife, beautiful home, all these resources. And I was still a whiny baby. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was depressed, but that was all because of not working out, not eating right. There's all these factors that I could control that I didn't. And it wasn't until I lost everything that I could really see uh, where the blame lied. And I had tried to place blame everywhere, but with myself throughout um, the lead up to being homeless. And uh, once I was living in the car, all that became started to become clear to me over the months and years thereafter. And uh, I realized that it all starts in the mind. And, um, you know, there's, there's uh, a lot to be grateful for in life, and it's very easy to get um, boiled. Do you have that empowerment now? You've had everything, you lost everything, but you know what that feels like, so you've got nothing to lose. Exactly. It's It's been empowering in a way, losing everything, because, uh, you know, before when I had the house and I had the family and everything, uh, I and I felt like I had a reputation to uphold and, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to risk, uh, failure. There's that word again. Um, cause I felt like it would reflect poorly on myself and my character and my abilities. Um, but then once I lost everything, I said, 
myself, well, I realized how foolish that notion or that thought process was to begin with, to not risk everything. And I think also some ego tied in there. I just didn't want to look like a failure or look like I needed anybody. But once I lost it, I said, it, you know, it's just like a burden is lifted off, off my shoulders. And uh, there really is nothing to lose. And so if someone tells me to buzz off, um, whereas before I would have really felt it personally, um, now it's 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 no big deal, you know. I've I've basically been told to buzz off by life, uh, and uh, you know, so really nothing can compare with that. Um, so it really puts things in perspective, and I don't have I don't have the fear I once did, and yeah, I have nothing to lose. So just go out there and make it happen, and um, I don't have the ego anymore either. I'm not ashamed or embarrassed to you know to approach people and be vulnerable, which is something you really have to be in order to be successful. And, uh, you know, I'm not trying to uphold an image anymore. It's the stories out there, you know, people know I've been homeless and I'm not trying to uh, put up a front. Have you had a look at the Olympic medals recently? I actually try not to. Um, I don't want to... <clears throat> I don't want to rest on my laurels, really. Um, life goes on and the world goes on around you and uh, and it moves quickly and it'll leave you in the dust in no time. Um, so the only time I really bring out the medals is uh, when I'll do a, a clinic for a swim team or if I'm showing them to kids. My parents have one of my medals. My ex has uh, three of them and then I have my Beijing medal. And the Beijing medal is just so beat up. It's the uh, the ribbon is all tattered. It's got some permanent marker on it because um, from giving you know autographs at clinics, um, thousands of kids have put it on, and it's been dropped once or twice, so it's a little dinged up. Um, and even though it's probably my least favorite medal because I didn't earn it at finals, um, it's also it holds a very special place because it was literally my meal ticket um, when I was living in my car. And for a while afterwards, um, you know, I bring it to clinics to show kids and uh, that's how I got paid and was able to feed myself for a long time. So it's a very special medal. I have that one and uh, the rest, you know, other people enjoy. Um, but I, I try to keep my focus on the future and moving forward nowadays. So the Beijing medal came in some tough times when you were in the car then? There was, a, was there a particular time that you, you got it out? I never really got it out to like look on it and reflect on like my past success or anything. Um, I just got it out when I needed to go to a clinic. Um, what I really leaned on was, was the memories of, what it, of all the things that went into winning and earning that medal and the other ones as well. And I would think to myself, you know, you put yourself through a lot of pain and training and really came over some obstacles and training. And um, I would remember what it took to succeed in a race. And for me, it was detaching from the pressure of the moment and whatever other negative emotions uh, might be tied into, you know, standing behind the block. And I would try to apply that to my current situation at the moment. Um, so I did a lot of detaching during the years um, 
where I was really struggling financially and uh, emotionally, uh, I would detach. That's probably the biggest thing swimming taught me was to go to my happy place. Don't think about the hard stuff that's about to ensue or the pain you're in. Um, you know, just just go to that go to that happy place and accomplish what you need to. And and for me, sometimes that was literally surviving the day because I was that low. Um, and uh, so I would detach from the moment, try to think of something positive or nothing at all. Actually, I didn't think of anything at all a lot of times. And that kind of got me through the really, really tough times where I was, you know, it'd be 10 at night and I couldn't sleep. And it was, you know, uh, a kid's birthday, one of my kids' birthday or a holiday or something like that. Um, and that's where swimming really, really paid off was the ability to, to detach. I mean, missing your kids' birthdays and missing holidays, I can only imagine how horrible that must, must feel. It was really tough. Uh, there were a lot of tears and just a lot of intense negative emotion. But I was prepared for that. You know, I guess the mental toughness kind of happened by default. Um, I had kind of uh, unwittingly built that up through years of swimming, you know, being able to, to cope with pressure and uh, just being mentally tough. And for me, that was always relying on the work I had put in and not letting the moment get the better of me. Uh, so yeah, when it was when it was Christmas and I was by myself in a, in a car, uh, uh, you know, I just kind of went back to, it was the same sort of feeling. Once the initial wave of emotion passed through me, it was, it, I put myself like I was behind the blocks, you know, just totally uh, in, the, in the zone, but it was a different zone. <laughs> I do want to talk just a little bit more about your situation now and okay. that you will tell me, describe what your situation, what was today like and what have you got planned for the future? Nowadays, I am working in real estate, residential real estate. I want to experience the same success in business as I once did in swimming. Um, so I'm really focused on real estate right now. I just moved to Colorado in October and um Found a really cool boutique firm, uh, great people in the office, great owner. And outside of work, um, I love Colorado. One, because the sun is always shining. I love mountains. Grew up in the mountains. Um, so I get to do all sorts of fun activities just right here in my backyard. Um, I do mountain biking and skiing and doing a little golf. Um, I'm also doing some volunteer coaching with, with a little swim club here in the neighborhood. I was just there this morning, and um, it's really cool to to see how enthusiastic these young kids are that are swimming and smiles that they get when, you know, they get a, a set that they really like to do, and they go, yes! And I remember doing that as a, as a young kid, having that enthusiasm, so it's, it's pretty cool to relive it vicariously through them. And, you know, if I can help in any way uh, encourage their passion for the sport or really life in general through the sport. Um, that's what really gets me excited. And uh, also working on seeing the kids, my kids nowadays. Um, 
just finally made some progress. It's just one of those life situations I've never thought I'd be in. Uh, never expected it, but it's what's happening. And, uh, you know, I try and cope with it every day and uh, maintain a positive attitude about things. And uh, one thing I wanted to mention earlier is that another thing I've learned since swimming is that uh, the, the fight never stops really for survival and making a living. Um, with swimming, I was, I worked so hard for basically my entire life from when I was a young kid until age 26. And when I retired from swimming, I was exhausted. All those years of training twice, three times a day, you know, five to six hours total each day, it really added up. And I realized that once I, once I stopped, I was, I was exhausted for a couple of years and I didn't want to work because I was so tired and you really put out a lot of emotional energy and physical energy training. That's at the level I did. And, uh, you know, other athletes do at that level. Um, so it kind of took me a little while to, uh, to get that energy back and to realize that I need to put forth that same effort uh, in life going forward that I did in swimming. And for a while, it was just really difficult to, to do that. But I've accepted it. <laughs> That's a big part of life is accepting the circumstances you're in and doing the best with it. And uh, I feel like I'm doing a much better job with it now than I have in the past. The biggest amount of respect to Cleet Keller for telling his story. Also, thanks to Sven Bush and Yvette Michael for helping with the interview. Plus James Pratt for top, top advice. So if you've enjoyed this story about never giving up, then maybe you will like the Olympic Channel original series, Flag and Family. It's all about beating the odds. So there's an episode about a boxer who was born to Ghanaian parents but was raised in Hamburg. The Youth Olympic Games gold medalist, Peter Kadiru, says he feels like a typical German. And there's the former refugee who became Norway's rising star of wrestling. Youth Olympic Games gold medalist as well, Grace Bullen, was born in a refugee camp in Eritrea and then moved to Norway when she was four. These stories and plenty more are available on olympicchannel.com and are streaming right now. If you throw in Flag and Family, Olympic Channel into a search engine, then it should all come up for you. Olympic Channel Podcast. So before I go, I don't know whether you were celebrating 4th of July, I went to see Lenny Kravitz and he was actually better than I thought, to be honest. We did a podcast though, and it was all about finishing 4th and that was last week's one, how to trust the process rather than get disappointed about outcomes. Had some social media reaction on Facebook, Kathy Lucannon saying, swimming 1st or 4th or even 15th in your country in the world, it's the hardest struggle of them all. And Mafaz Altameme left us a little emoji with some heart eyes, which is also very nice indeed too. For a podcast recommendation this week, I'm going for Jim Castic. It's the number one gymnastic podcast in the world, or so it says. Mind you, who am I to argue with it? Anyway, it's really fun and it's a great way of keeping up with the news, especially about US gymnastics. Remember, with this podcast, you should subscribe so you don't miss out on any Olympic Channel podcast episodes and it helps us out. Another thing that helps us out is leaving a five-star review on iTunes. It's good for other people being able to discover us as well. That's it for now. Until next time. Think like an Olympian.